Let us pray. Our great and gracious God, You created us. You redeemed us. You have summoned us into Your presence today. We owe everything to You. We can do nothing apart from You. We are utterly dependent upon Your grace. And so God, we ask, give us Your gifts today. Bless us with Your presence. Send us out from here today in Your strength, equipped and encouraged to serve. Assure us of Your love and forgiveness. O triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to You belong all glory, wisdom, and power. We acclaim You worthy of all honor and worship. May Your kingdom grow to fill the earth, for You are from everlasting and to everlasting, the one true God. Amen. I want to read further in Mark's Gospel, continuing in verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, O Lord, be pleasing in Your sight, our Rock and our Kinsman Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever felt utterly and completely alone? Like you just don't have a friend in the world? Have you ever had a dark night of the soul? A time when you felt surrounded by darkness? Have you ever prayed for something as intently as you know how to pray and God did not seem to hear? You call out to Him, but there is no answer. Have you ever been bullied? Slandered? Gossiped about? Have you ever been treated unfairly and yet no one seems to care? No one seems to care about the justice of your cause? There is an answer to these dilemmas. God's answer to our loneliness, to our experiences of injustice, to our darkness and our suffering is the cross. In the cross, God takes His last stand against all the evil and injustice and oppression of the world. God takes the world's worst and He endures it in order to defeat it and to redeem His creation. God enters into the ultimate suffering. In fact, God becomes the greatest of all sufferers, the chief of all sufferers in order to be with us in the midst of our suffering and to redeem our suffering and ultimately to rescue us from it. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian faith is the story 
of a God who died for men. And it really is that simple. Dorothy Sayer said the Christian faith is the most exciting drama ever staged. In the Christian gospel, the dogma is the drama. She goes on to say, she says, God may prescribe suffering for us, but He has taken His own medicine. See, Christ has overcome all evil precisely by undergoing all evil. He has defeated death by dying. He has brought in justice by suffering injustice. And it's really no stretch to say the whole of the Bible is about what happened on that tree on Golgotha. The cross really is the pivot of the whole narrative, of the whole story that Scripture tells. It all comes to fulfillment there on that tree. The cross is the work of the Trinity. The cross is the work of God the Father who gave His Son in love for the world. Don't think that the Son dies to somehow convince the Father to love us. Rather, the Father gave Jesus to die for us because He already loved us with a costly and sacrificial love. As John 3.16 puts it, it's so well known. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It does not say God so hated the world until the Son gave Himself for us. No, the cross has its source and its origin in the love of the Father. The cross is the loving work of the Father. The cross is the work of the Son. God the Son who did not cling to equality with God, but gave Himself obediently to the shameful death of the cross. He was obedient even to the point of death, dying on the cross for us in love. As Paul says in Galatians 2, Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. And we can say too, the cross is the work of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9 tells us through the eternal Spirit, the Son offered Himself to the Father. The Holy Spirit is present there at the cross. The Spirit is breathed out by the Son as He breathes His last. And the Spirit is now at work in our lives to connect us to the once and for all event of the cross. So the Spirit now works in us in love to conform us to the image of the crucified Christ. So we learn more and more to say no to sin and ungodliness and to say yes to all that is good and righteous. The cross is the work of the Trinity. Julian of Norwich once said, when I look at the cross, I see the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit working together. Say the cross is what the whole Bible is about, and I really think that's true. The cross is foreshadowed again and again throughout the Scriptures. Our father Adam fell at a tree, and by a tree the sons of Adam are saved. The cross was a tree of death for Jesus, but it is a tree of life for us. The cross is the true tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The royal tree, the tree upon which Jesus becomes king. Satan defeated Adam at a tree, but at a tree Jesus defeats Satan, crushing his skull under his feet. At the cross, the fruit that Adam and Eve stole is replaced. Restitution is made so that curse now gives way to blessing. The cross is the tree of the kingdom prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel. 
the tree of the kingdom, which grows to be the greatest of all the trees. So the birds of the air, the Gentile nations come and make their nest in it. The cross is the tree of Israel on which the true Israel dies for the sake of Israel to create a new Israel. The prophets show how for generations Israel worshipped idols under every green tree. Indeed, Israel would cut down trees and shape them into idols to worship. Finally, Israel joined with Rome in shaping a tree into a cross on which to hang her long-promised Messiah. But through the love of God, that very tree of the cross, the place of Israel's ultimate rebellion, became the place of her final salvation. At the cross, we see that Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1, the righteous man who is like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in every season. Yes, the cross reveals that we are broken, but it also shows us that we are beloved. We're both broken and beloved. Broken and yet blessed. Because Jesus was cursed for us at the cross when He hung on that tree, we are now blessed. No one could ever suffer as much as the Son of God suffered on the cross. We all like to think our suffering is unique, that there's something special about our suffering. There's only one who can say, no one has ever suffered like this. And that's Jesus Himself. What happens at the cross? The Creator is crucified by His creatures. It is the ultimate injustice. And yet it is also the ultimate justice. Because as He hangs there dying, He is bearing the sins of the world to bring about our forgiveness that God might be just and the justifier of those sinners who put their faith in Jesus. The cross is the ultimate act of love. As God dies for His enemies to save His enemies, God puts Himself in the place of His enemies, enduring what His enemies deserve, that He might be reconciled to His enemies, that He might befriend we who were once His enemies. But of course, not everyone sees the cross this way. Not everyone sees the cross as something so powerful. Some see it as pathetic. Just take one example for this. The, the celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins puts it this way. He says the idea that the only way we can be redeemed from sin is through the death of Jesus, that's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea that this paragon of wisdom and knowledge, power, could not think of a better way to forgive our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive. The story of the cross looks pathetic. It looks foolish in the eyes of the world. And think about it. God coming to planet Earth. And then when God gets here, we seek to kill Him and He lets us do it. That really does sound pathetic, doesn't it? It certainly sounds pathetic if we don't understand what's actually happening and why. It sounds like a far-fetched fairy tale unless we understand the truth of its meaning, what's really happening. And so let's look at it. We're going to spend several weeks on this. I can't do all of this in one day, but I want to look closely here at how Mark describes the cross. See, as a minister of the Gospel, I am sworn to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the cross. The truth of the cross is the Christian message. As the Apostle Paul put it, I am resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. 
So when we look at the story of the cross, what do we learn? There are five things that stand out here for us to look at. We're not going to look at all of these uh, today. They'll go ahead and give them to you so that you can have these categories in place as you look at this story. These things, they'll start with D, so easy to, 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 to uh, take note of this. Darkness, drink, dereliction, death, and discipleship. Those five things. Let's start with darkness. Darkness. Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Mark gives us time markers along the way throughout this event. Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That would be nine in the morning to us. We read that in 1525. Mark tells us when the sixth hour had come, at noon, at what would usually be the brightest part of the day, darkness covered the whole land until, he tells us, the ninth hour, that is three in the afternoon, when Jesus finally died. Now what does this darkness mean? What is this darkness all about? Why is the land engulfed in darkness as Jesus dies on the cross? Simply put, the light of the world is about to be put out. Just as the Word, the Logos, is about to be silenced, just as the Son is about to be made fatherless, the one who is life in himself is about to die, so the whole land becomes dark because the light of all lights, the light of the world, is about to be extinguished. The darkness, this darkness covers the land. And yet while that darkness hides Jesus, that darkness also reveals what is happening as he is crucified. See, darkness all throughout Scripture is a symbol of judgment. I should say often in Scripture it is a symbol of judgment. Just as light is a symbol of blessing and truth and wisdom, so darkness is often a symbol of judgment. We read Joel 2 this morning that talks about that great and terrible day of the Lord and how it will be a day of darkness and gloom and a cloud of thick darkness will cover the land. Or think about Amos chapter 8 where the prophet says, in the day of the Lord, the Lord says He will make the sun go down at noon. How about that? The sun will go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. But there are other darkness events in Scripture we should take note of. We could point to the Exodus, to the Passover, to the plagues that God brought against Egypt. The ninth plague God brings against Egypt is three days of thick darkness. We could say here, Jesus is enduring the plague of darkness. He is plagued for us. And of course, the final plague, the tenth plague, is the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn son in the middle of the night, in the midst of darkness. Jesus is that firstborn son. And remember, all of this is taking place at Passover in real time. In Mark 15, this is in this is at Passover. Jesus is dying on Passover Friday. What is God showing? He's showing this is the Passover lamb. God has provided a Passover lamb as a substitute for the people. That's Jesus. Taking judgment, taking death, so His people can be spared. So they can be set free in a new exodus and brought into a new and better promised land. But there's another layer of meaning here. I think if we keep drilling down into this, we, we can say more. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, the creation was dark. There was darkness over the face of the earth. It was, it was without form. It was 
void. It was empty. And then God says on the first day of creation, let there be light, and the darkness gives way to light. See, to have darkness here is a sign that creation is convulsing. It's creation in reverse. Instead of darkness giving way to light, now light gives way to darkness. Darkness in the middle of the day is a kind of decreation. And it shows us when Jesus is dying on the cross, He is unmaking the old world. Why? In order to create a new world. One of my favorite scenes in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, takes place as uh, Jesus is on the Via Dolorosa, uh, the way to the cross. He's been beaten. Of course, if you've seen the, the, the movie, you know just how uh, beaten and bloody he is at this point. Uh, he's about to be crucified. He's on the way to Golgotha. And at one point along the way, he stumbles and he nearly falls. And his mother steps towards him to wipe his bloody face And Jesus looks up into His mother's face and says to Mary, Look, Mother, I am making all things new. Mel Gibson's taken liberties there with the narrative of Scripture itself. But I think he's got a really good point. That is exactly what is happening. It seems absurd when you see it on the big screen. It seems crazy. It seems foolish. How can this apparently weak and pitiful man covered in his own blood going to His own crucifixion, about to be shamefully killed, how can He remake the world? And yet that's what the cross is all about. The undoing of the old world, the recreation of a new world. Jesus overcomes the darkness by entering into the darkness. He endures the darkness of the cross to bring the light of His resurrection into the world. You can never separate the cross from the resurrection. What Jesus is beginning to do here in the remaking of the world, of course, it continues and comes to fruition in His resurrection. But by covering the world with darkness, covering the land with darkness at this moment, God is showing the cross is shaking down the old world. The old world is being undone that a new world might take take its place. The cross marks the beginning of a new creation. And this means the effect of the cross is a lot bigger than we might sometimes think. Yes, Jesus died so you could have your sins forgiven. Yes, that is true. But there is so much more going on in the cross. See, our problem is not simply that God gave us a moral exam and we flunked it. No, it is, as N.T. Wright has put it, God gave us a vocation, a calling, a task, and we corrupted it. Our original vocation was to reflect God's image, to be God's image bearers reflecting God's image as we rule over His creation as priests and kings taking dominion over His world in wisdom. But when Adam and Eve rebelled, that that, that vocation was corrupted. Our rebellion and idolatry canceled out that vocation. So instead of glorifying God's world, bringing God's world from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory, we began to vandalize God's good creation and mark God's good creation with sin and death, with idolatry and blasphemy. 
But in Jesus' death, as the world is recreated, our vocation as image bearers is restored. And so now in Christ Jesus, through His cross, we can learn once again how to give ourselves in sacrificial love, how to rule over the world in wisdom, how to worship the triune God as priests and kings. In Christ Jesus, we can learn to reign over the world, wisely stewarding God's creation as we are conformed to the image of the crucified Christ, giving ourselves in loving service, giving ourselves sacrificially for the good of others and of the world. That's our calling. That's how we live as kings and priests. That's the human vocation. That's the point of life. And it's all being restored to us at the cross. Yes, the cross is about your forgiveness, but it's also about your vocation and restoration, and new creation. The effect of the cross is cosmic. Don't just consider its effects on individuals here and there who get touched by it and who get saved and get their sins forgiven. It's so much bigger than that. The cross is cosmic in scope. It's God's way of putting His whole creation back on track. So God's original purpose is for the creation to turn the Garden of Eden into the new Jerusalem, to transform the world from glory to glory, can now be fulfilled. So the kings and queens can sit on the thrones at Care Paravel, sons of, uh, of Adam and daughters of Eve, ruling over God's world in wisdom. And indeed, there's a long tradition in church history of seeing the cross as the beginning of God's new creation. J.R.R. Tolkien uh, gets at this. He understood this. And it's reflected in his epic work, Lord of the Rings. You have to read the appendices to get this. So you got to be a real, uh, you got to really love Tolkien uh, to work through all of this. But it's very interesting. In the Lord of the Rings, we find in one of the appendices that the evil ring of power is destroyed. And therefore, Sauron is overthrown on March 25th. Now, what's significant about that? Well, if you read Augustine and others from the early church, you will find that March 25th is the, the traditional day in the church calendar, not only of Christ's conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary nine months before Christmas, but also of His death. Passover in that year, 30 A.D. or thereabouts, landed on March 25th. It was the day of Christ's death. See, in Tolkien's epic, when the ring of power was destroyed, it meant a new age was beginning, a new era was dawning in Middle-earth. When Jesus died on the cross, a new age in human history was beginning, a new age in our earth began. Colossians 1 tells us this. It says, Jesus has reconciled all things to Himself, things in heaven and things on earth, having made peace through the blood of His cross. If you were to sum up the whole message of the Old Testament prophets in one word, what do they envision when they look ahead to the coming of the kingdom of God and how glorious it's going to be? It'd be that one word, peace. Shalom in the Hebrew. Peace. That, that state of human flourishing where everything is put right, everything's put in its place, every, unjust, every injustice is dealt with, every wrong righted. The prophets call that shalom. And in Colossians 1, Paul tells us through the blood of His cross, He has brought peace to heaven and earth, reconciling all things to Himself. Through Christ's cross, He has reordered and remade the cosmos. But there's more. 
There's not only darkness, there's also drink. Jesus not only undergoes darkness, He undergoes thirst. The One who is the light of the world endures darkness. The One who offered living water to others, water that if they would drink of it, they would never thirst again, gets thirsty. He is parched on the cross. Now, twice the issue of drink comes up in Mark 15. We need to look at both of these because they fit together. First, in Mark 15.23, the soldiers offer Jesus wine mingled with myrrh as He is on the way to Golgotha where He will be crucified. Now, I have to remember, we looked at this previously, but I know it's been a while, so let me just remind you. The soldiers have been mocking Jesus. They know He's going to be crucified for being King of the Jews, for claiming to be a king. That's why that's posted on the cross. That's affixed to the cross, because typically they would put the accusation under which the man was dying uh, above him as he died on the cross. And of course, crucifying somebody was Rome's way of saying, Caesar is king, Caesar is lord. And so the Roman soldiers think this is just ridiculous that Jesus would have claimed to be a king. And so they're making fun of his claims to be a king. I think offering him drink there in Mark 15, 23 is part of that. It's part of the mockery. They've gone through a whole mock coronation. They put a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. They put a, a staff in his hands, but only if they beat him with it. They put a purple cloak over his shoulders. It looks royal, but of course it's all mockery. They kneel before him in mock homage, mock worship. And so now they have a kind of mock coronation procession. It's a kind of mock procession. And when they come to offer him drink, it's as if they're pretending to be his cupbearers. We, we see this throughout the Old Testament. You see this throughout ancient history, kings always have cupbearers. The cupbearer is the one who brings the cup of the king to him to drink. The king, the cupbearer is the one who is closest to the king. Really, you could say the last line of defense between the king and those who would try to poison him. Well, here they pretend to be his cupbearers. But he refuses. He refuses their offer of the wine and myrrh. Now, there may be other layers of meaning to this besides simply the fact that Jesus obviously is reason to not trust them. Maybe that Jesus also refuses this wine mixed with myrrh because he knows this is a kind of narcotic that will dull his senses, that will numb him to the pain he's about to endure. But he knows he must endure that wrath that he is about to face with all of his senses intact. It may also be that Jesus knows he is a priest doing priestly work. He's entered into the tabernacle, so to speak, to offer the final sacrifice. If you go back and you look at the Torah, the Old Testament law, you find that priests were forbidden to drink wine on the job. They could not drink wine in the tabernacle or in the temple. They were surrounded by wine. There was wine everywhere in the tabernacle, but all the drink offerings had to be poured out. They were for God alone. And so Jesus will not drink their cup of wine because He knows He must drink another cup, the cup of His Father, the cup of suffering and wrath and woe. So He says no to their cup that He might say yes to the cup of sacrifice His Father has for Him. But then you move ahead to where Jesus is now on the cross and He is again offered wine. Mark describes it as 
sour wine. Now, the word that's used here actually connects what's happening here with Psalm 69. This is Psalm 69 coming to fulfillment. Psalm 69 is a kingly psalm. It's a royal psalm penned by David. Uh, it is a psalm about one who has great zeal for the Lord's house. Zeal for the Lord's house consumes me, he says. But it's also about one who is opposed at every turn and indeed oppressed by his enemies. He cries out to God to save him. He says in Psalm 69, he has no one he can trust. He says he is hated without cause. He says in Psalm 69, his throat is parched while he waits for God to come to his aid. He says his enemies have put him to shame. They have dishonored him. And in 21, verse 21 of that psalm, he says, they gave me sour wine for food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar. That is exactly what they do here. They unwittingly fulfill this royal psalm, Psalm 69, which is about God's chosen one, God's king who's being oppressed by his enemies on every side. But again, I think it's mockery on their part. They think Jesus has been crying out for Elijah. And Mark actually gives us the Aramaic so we can understand how they could have made this mistake. They think Jesus is calling out for Elijah. These are probably the soldiers who offer him this wine. So they're Gentiles, so they can't be expected to fully understand the Hebrew Scriptures, but they know a little bit. And they know that name Elijah, the name of the great prophet of Israel. And they know too, perhaps, that Malachi the prophet said that Elijah would come before the Messiah and would restore all things. That is, an Elijah would come, an Elijah figure would come and would pave the way for Messiah's ministry. And so they're thinking, well, if he says he's the king of the, of the Jews, then let Elijah come. Just as the prophet said. But of course, if we're careful readers of Mark's Gospel, we remember from Mark chapter 9 as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Transfiguration that he says Elijah has already come. Malachi's prophecy of an Elijah figure has already been fulfilled in John the Baptist who did prepare the way. But again, if you're paying attention, you know John paved the way not only by preaching and by doing good to all, but also by getting beheaded. By fear, he paved the way not only in his life, but in his death. They think Jesus must be expecting Elijah to come and take him down from the cross. Maybe at the last moment, Elijah will swoop in and rescue him. But they're also thinking, well, if Elijah's going to do that, he better do it quick. Better do it soon before it's too late. I think that's the gist of verse 36. But they're, they're just completely mistaken completely wrong-headed. Jesus drinks the wine this time when He's offered it on the cross. Mark implies that. Uh, it's explicit in John's Gospel. We can ask the question, why did Jesus drink? If He refused drink earlier because He was a priest on the job, if He accepts the offer of wine now, if he drinks now, what does it mean? It means his sacrificial work is now complete. It means he has suffered and he has offered an effective sacrifice. He has made atonement for the sins of the world. He has run his race and finished his course. And so accepting this offer of drink, drinking this wine is a celebration. 
And indeed, if you see it that way, I think it fits well with the tearing of the temple veil that happens moments later, showing the temple's now obsolete. No more sacrifice needs to be offered at the temple because now the great high priest has done his work. The priest could not drink on the job because their job was never done. They never finished because they never offered a sacrifice that really dealt with sin, but not so with Jesus. His work of offering sacrifice is now complete. And I think if this is the case, it also fits with the vow that Jesus made at the Last Supper when He was at the table with His disciples in Mark 14. He made a vow there to not drink of the fruit of the vine until He drinks it anew in His Father's kingdom. Well, if He is drinking it here, it must mean the kingdom has come. It means He is now victorious. And so just as you know, we see this kind of thing all the time, the winning team, after the championship game, they go back into the locker room, they start to uncork the champagne, the, the, the wine and the bubbly flow out as, as a great sign of their celebration. Jesus has now won the victory. And so it's time to uncork the wine and celebrate His triumph. He's going to celebrate even in the midst of His enemies. Because He is victorious. And that brings us really to dereliction a consideration of the cry of dereliction. They misunderstood it as a call for Elijah. It was actually his cry to God. On the cross, Jesus cries out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting how Psalm 22 is just all over the place in the crucifixion account. If you read through Psalm 22, it almost looks like a kind of poetic description of what Jesus is going through as He is taken away and crucified. All these prophecies from Psalm 22 come to fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion. Psalm 22 says, for example, that, remember this is the King speaking, it's the King of Israel, the one who represents and embodies the nation in Himself, the one who is speaking as a King, as a royal figure. Psalm 22, he says his enemies will wag their heads at him and ridicule him in verse 7. Of course, that's exactly what they do here. They wag their heads at him and they, they, they mock him. Verse 8, he says that his enemies will taunt him. Verse 15 of Psalm 22 describes his thirst and his parched throat. So there's that theme again. Verse 16, he says, they will pierce my hands and feet. A very clear and direct prophecy of the crucifixion. Verse 18 says they will divide His clothing. That's something the soldiers have just done, casting lots to divide up Jesus' garments. So this royal figure is stripped naked. It's clear that when we read the account of the crucifixion, we should have the words of Psalm 22 ringing in our ears. But the real focus for us this morning is going to be that first verse in Psalm 22, which Jesus puts on His lips, the cry of dereliction, as it's known, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The death of Jesus is a mystery. It is a mystery as deep as God Himself. What does this cry of dereliction mean? Well, certainly we have to say there was never a time when God was not a trinity, never a time when God was not a unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even on the cross, the three persons work as one God to redeem us. God the Father and God the Son willed with the one will of God the salvation of sinners through the cross. And yet, 
We have to do these words justice. On the cross, God experienced something He had never experienced before. God tasted death in the flesh of the man Jesus. The God-man experienced death. See, for Jesus, the pain of the cross was not just the, the flogging and the scourging and the mocking and the nails and the thorns. The pain of the cross was infinitely greater than just that emotional and physical pain. Ultimately, He endured the agony of separation from His Father. The Father becomes sonless in some way and the Son becomes fatherless. See, I want to stress to you, these words are real. Jesus did not merely feel abandoned as if it were all subjective. It's just how He feels. Some say that, that Jesus felt God forsaken even though He actually wasn't. No, that doesn't do justice to this. Jesus really was, in some sense, cut off from His Father even as He offered Himself to the Father. The Father never ceased loving Him and Jesus never ceased trusting His Father. And yet Jesus in some way had to bear in Himself the wrath of God, which means in some way His Father had to turn away from Him and give Him over. All Jesus, as the Son of God, had ever known up to this moment was the love and joy and communion of His Father. There was never a time when the Father was not there to help Him or to come to His aid or to His defense. But now, in His moment of greatest need, His Father turns away. And so the Son endures the curse. God the Father does not hear Him or help Him when He cries out. He who had only known the sunshine of His Father's love now experiences the darkness and aloneness of being separate from His Father. God the Son is forsaken by God the Father. Why does this happen? Why must He experience God forsakenness? You know, people sometimes wonder, why couldn't God just do a presidential pardon? Why the cross? Why can't God just forgive sin? Why does He need a sacrificial victim to be appeased or satisfied? Well, uh, Anselm, the medieval Christian philosopher, was asked that question. He says, anybody who asks that question, he says, you have not considered how great and terrible a thing sin is. Sin is so terrible that only the death of God can deal with it. Why must the Father forsake His Son? Why must the Son experience God forsakenness? Because that is what sin is. Deserve. Deuteronomy 31.17 says, when God's people go after idols, God said, when, when they forsake Him, God says, I will forsake them. That's what idolatry deserves. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Because of your sins, He has hidden His face and will not hear you. That's what sin deserves. See, whatever sin deserves, that's what Jesus endured. If sin deserves God forsakenness, He was forsaken. If sin deserves condemnation, He was condemned. If sin deserves curse, He was cursed. If sin deserves hell, 
Hell is what Jesus experienced on the cross. Indeed, an eternal hell compressed into six hours of infinite agony. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, but Psalm 88 applies just as well. There the psalmist says, God, You have put me in the lowest pit, the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. Why, Lord, do You reject me and hide Your face from me? Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. Darkness is my closest companion. On the cross, Jesus is left godless. The Son is fatherless. He cries out and there is no response. He asks why and there is no answer. God did not spare His only Son. So there is Jesus hanging on the cross, lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth, and yet rejected by both heaven and earth. Why? So that He might reconcile heaven and earth and bring them together. Because He is our substitute, there can be no substitute for Him. This is not like when Abraham goes up the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice his dearly beloved son and then God stops him at the last moment and provides a ram. No, there will be no holding back the knife this time. Jesus must endure the full intensity of the divine wrath on His own. And He does so. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Acts 20, the church has been purchased with the blood of God. It took the blood of God to purchase us, to redeem us, to set us free from the penalty and power of sin. This is the mystery of the cross. God judged God on the cross. God forsook God. God endures His own wrath. God endures what man deserves. That's the cross. Our God is the God of the cross. The bloodied and beaten God. The God who has been shamed that we might be glorified. The God who pledged His own being for our salvation right down to the last drop of blood in Jesus' body. The Gospel is simply this. God crucified for sinners. God in the place of sinners. God crying out words of dereliction that should be ours. He makes our own dereliction His. The cross is the dereliction of God. God abandoning God. That we might never be abandoned again. Now when Jesus dies, when He undergoes death, the veil in the temple is torn, which means God's people who are held at an arm's length are now welcomed in to the closest possible fellowship and intimacy. As if because Jesus underwent this dereliction, He was abandoned. He was excluded in some way from His Father. Now we can be included. And of course, the centurion sees all of this and he makes an amazing confession. Surely this man was the Son of God. Only God could have died like this. And it shows this Roman centurion, perhaps the very one who drove the nails into Jesus' body, has now become His disciple. We're going to discuss those things and more in the future. But let me close with this. What do we say to these things we have seen in this story here? You know, if you're not a Christian, 
you might think, well, the cross looks pathetic. I don't see any power there at all. It just looks pathetic. And you might say, why does it even matter? It looks so foolish to me. Why does it even matter that Jesus was abandoned by His Father? You're thinking to yourself, if you're not a Christian, I don't need God. I don't care if God abandons me or not. I'm doing just fine without God in my life right now. Well, actually, you need to understand that's not the case at all. You might be ignoring God, but you are certainly not living without God. He has not left you all alone. He has not abandoned you because if He had, you would know it. I want to ask you, who do you think gives you life and breath? Who gives you life and love and joy and beauty and every good thing you experience? See, the reality is everything that makes life worth living comes from God. But without God, if God were to pull back and abandon you, there would be no love, no life, no light, no joy. Just utter and total aloneness and darkness. You have never experienced that. But you will. If you don't put your trust in Jesus, if you continue to refuse God's invitation to trust Him and to love Him and to serve Him as you were made to do, yes, you will experience that utter aloneness and darkness yourself. See, Jesus gave up all that was good in order to save you. He descended to the depths of darkness so you will never have to if you will only trust in Him. But the story of the cross addresses us in other ways. You know, if you're a believer, I've, I've noticed through the years that Christians were, were so often puzzled by our suffering. And when we go through times of intense suffering, it's easy for us to start to doubt God's goodness. And we start to wonder, does God really care for me? Does God hear me when I pray? Why is God letting this happen to me? Why is God putting me through this? And you cry out, and there doesn't seem to be any answer, and the suffering goes on. Well, let me tell you, the cross tells you why you are suffering. Or maybe better say, even if you don't get a full explanation of the why, it at least tells you why the, the, the reason you're one of the things that you can exclude from the reasons for your suffering. The cross says to you, you're not suffering because you're unloved. No, not at all. If you're suffering as a Christian, it's because God has a plan for you, a plan that includes pain. That will be used for a good purpose, just like we sang in the hymn this morning. If you are suffering, it means God has a plan for you, a plan to mature you and make you glorious like Jesus Himself. And the only way to become like Jesus is to taste His suffering, to share in His suffering in some way. And Martin Luther said, if our Master wore a crown of thorns, how can we expect to wear a crown of roses? We're going to have our own suffering, our own crosses to carry. And so if you are suffering and wondering, has God given up on me? I would urge you, don't give up. Because God hasn't given up on you. God is working in you. Know that in your suffering, you are never actually alone. Jesus was alone, so you never will be. Jesus has been to hell and back for you. And He is with you in the midst of your misery. And He knows what it's like, no matter how bad your suffering is, He knows what it's like, and even worse. And He does care for you. And through the message of His cross, He assures you that after darkness comes light. 
After the cross comes resurrection. You may feel abandoned, but you aren't. Because Jesus really was abandoned. For Jesus, it was not just a feeling. It was real abandonment. So that now when you feel abandoned, you can know you're really not. He was abandoned, and so you never will be. And so the promise of Hebrews 13.5 is yours. God says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you because I love you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for not sparing Your Son so that we might be spared. We thank You that He endured hell so we can have heaven. We thank You He was abandoned so we never will be. We thank You He was excluded in some way, driven out, cast out as a scapegoat so that we might be included, so that we might draw near to You through the torn veil that is His flesh and have fellowship with You. We thank You that He was rejected by both heaven and earth in order to reconcile heaven and earth in Himself. And now, Father, we know our suffering is really a privilege because it is a fellowship and a sharing in the sufferings of Christ to make us more like Him. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we say thank You. Amen.